0: Good morning everybody. We're gonna go ahead and get started here, Um, open up with a word of prayer and then uh, we'll kind of get into things here for the class. So uh, let's pray here this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we just ask your blessing upon the uh, class here today and we look into your word and try to uh, decipher what we find here in your word. Uh, Father, we just ask that the Spirit of God would guide us and help us to uh, help us to uh, learn from, from what you have for us today. And we just ask this in your precious name, Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter thirty-nine, and we are going to try to close out, um, you know, the Gog and Magog passages today. Uh, we were kind of on an ambitious schedule to try to close it out last week, and that did not work. Um, we only got through about, what, 11 verses, something like that. So we're going to try to pick up where we left off last week. Now, the first thing I want to do is try to answer a couple of the questions. Rick, you had a couple questions there um, about, uh, uh, you know, are these modern arms at the end of, uh, you know, in this battle, and and how does that correlate to the burning of the, you know, uh, of the weapons and things like that to use them for fuel? Of course, there's all kind of different answers to that. Uh, the people, obviously, who view the whole passage as as just a, uh, you know symbolism, of course, they would argue that there's no actual battle that takes place; that all this is symbolic. Of course, we don't take that approach. Uh, and so, you know, believing that there is an actual battle, it seems like there's two basic solutions for this. One is that. Yes, they—you the, know—they're talking about bows and arrows and things like that, you know. But he's writing to the audience of ancient Judah, uh, and they would know not like if he said, "Hey, I, I looked up and I saw a bunch of tanks coming. I saw a bunch of jet planes." Yeah, you know, I mean that would mean absolutely nothing to Ezekiel. Uh, so some people look at it as God is—you is, know—gave him a vision of what the worst army imaginable would be in his day, and then that will correspond over to what the worst army imaginable will be at the, at the end times. Now, what that would be, uh, we don't know. Uh, it depends on what the world looks like at that point. If this is at the end of the tribulation, if this is equivalent to the battle of Armageddon, man, after all the just craziness going on in the world, what will the world look like? What would an army, what would raising even the, the biggest army of, that, that the world has ever seen, what would that even look like at that point in history? Would it be back to bow and arrows and, and horses and swords uh, because just so much has been destroyed? Um, you know, of course, you know, they may not. You know, they, it doesn't necessarily mean all the other more advanced modern weaponry is going to be destroyed. Uh, if it is modern weaponry, I, you know, though it's not made of wood anymore, uh, there's still probably plenty of fuel and things that can be used to correspond to this passage that they could burn for for fuel for, you know, for seven years. Um, another possibility, of if, if this it does correspond to the last final battle when Satan is loosed at the end of the millennium, uh, you know, of course, then you've got a thousand years of peace leading up to that, and there probably are no more weapons of war, at least not in a modern sense. Uh, you know, the Bible talks about them, them beating their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Interestingly enough, you know, and this is kind of a side thing here, but we always think about that one, but there's actually the completely opposite quote uh, in Joel where God is probably talking about this very same passage uh, you know, and he t- he tells the nations to come up against me, beat your, you know, plowshares into swords and your your uh, pruning hooks into spears. So you have both. Uh, you know, so it's kind of uh, at one at one point they're they're turn- making weapons, and at the other point they are their weapons are being destroyed. So if it happens at, at the very end, there probably are no modern weapons. At that point, because in the millennium they're not going to be making weapons. So, uh, those are kind of the options. The reality is, we don't, nobody really knows. And if it is a combination of the two, which again, I kind of think that fits the best that, that this is talking about a, a battle that Armageddon that starts before the, the millennium and then ends in Gog and Magog being, re, you know, all happening again. Uh, you know, then that's why we kind of find some of the things that seem to point to one before the millennium and some that point to after. Uh, so I think there's probably at least a pretty good possibility there may not be modern weaponry in the world at this time, just because of all the stuff that's, that's happened. The cataclysm of the seven years of tribulation followed immediately by a thousand years of, of peace, where the uh, you know, where, where the Messiah is reigning. Um, so, you know, that's about the best we can do, I think. Uh, it's just, that those are kind of the options. Uh, you know, as far as the cleanup, the seven, year, uh, seven years of burning the fuel, the seven months of gathering up the bodies, uh, that definitely seems to fit better for before the, the millennium. Uh, you know, uh, the, you, you'd made the point that if that happens at the end of the millennium, wh- where, how does that work time frame wise? And though we don't, you know, there's no strict time frame that we know of, but it does not seem to work then, certainly not near, nearly as well as it would before the millennium. And that's just another reason why, actually it's, it's funny, I've, I've read uh, three commentaries on this this week, and two out of the three, took the position that this is a this is referring both to Armageddon and to the loosing of Satan at the end. So it's funny, it doesn't seem to be a minority opinion. It actually seems to be becoming more of a majority opinion that there's just too many things that point to before and too many things that point to after in the in this passage that it probably is a combination of, of both. So th- that's, you know, I hope that helps, you know, any of you that because those were good questions, uh, I thought the same things. It's like, wow, this presents some interesting, you know, not necessarily problems, but intricacies to to this passage. So hopefully that is that is helpful. Any other? Oh, you're you're welcome. Uh, you're welcome. Any other questions? All right, let's jump back in and and look at Ezekiel chapter. Uh, 39, and we're going to look at, at verses uh, 11, or excuse me, verses 12 through 16, the cleaning of the land. It says, For seven months the Israelites will, uh, will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them, and the, the day I display uh, my glory will be a memorable day for them, declares the sovereign Lord. People will be continually employed in cleansing the land. They will spread out across the land, and along with, with others, they will bury any bodies that are lying in the ground. After the seven months, they will carry out a more detailed search. As they go through the land, anyone who sees a human bone will leave a marker beside it until the gravediggers bury it in the Battle of Haman-gog, or in the valley of Hamon gog near the town called Hamanah, and so they will cleanse the land. You see multiple times there that that phrase, cleansing the land, is used. And, and, and anytime you see something kind of spoken of multiple times like that, it's probably trying to make a, make a point. Uh, so, it will be important for some reason to cleanse the land. Now, why? Um, there's different, again, there's, there's different ideas about, about why that is important. Well, in the Old Testament, a, a dead body was seen as unclean. So, you know, if, if a, a dead body couldn't, like, You know, be just left lay around. Had to be dealt with uh, quickly. Uh, If you remember, even to the time of Jesus, they they wanted to try to get him off the cross and 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 you know get him in a tomb quickly. Uh, You know, and and so they. In fact, if you go to uh, did I I hope I wrote yes, Deuteronomy chapter twenty one, verse twenty three. And this is just one example. Uh, there, there are other examples in the law where it talks about this, this kind of thing, but this is one example. i actually start in, in verse 22. It says, if someone, someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So there was the idea, and it wasn't so much in that case that the body was impure, it was the fact of why they killed the person. The the person was considered impure because of their sins. Uh, And and so if you, you, and I don't know exactly what it meant to hang on a pole, the the Jews didn't crucify, uh, so it didn't mean crucifixion, probably hanging. Uh, you know, either that or put them on a pole and stone them against a pole. I'm, I'm really not sure. But if someone was like hung on a pole and, and you know, killed because of a capital offense, they were executed, uh, they were considered, you know, unclean because of their sins. And so, you know, God in, in, in the law said, get them down off that pole right away and, and take care of the body because I don't want the land to be unclean because of their sin. So the idea of ritual cleanliness was very important in the Old Testament. Now, how does that translate into the time of this, uh, of this battle, Uh, probably leading into the millennial kingdom? Well, in some ways it doesn't. You know, we're not living under the auspices of of the Old Testament law anymore. Now, there are some people that do believe in the millennial kingdom, certain aspects of the law will come back just because Christ will be on the throne, uh, he will be ruling, you know, perfectly. People still will be sinful. People are not perfect, but Christ will be perfect. And because it will be a perfect rule, there are some people that look at some of the Old Testament passages and say it's possible some of the elements of the law come back, some of the sacrifices. Again, there won't be any need for, you know, for the the Day of Atonement or anything like that, but there seem to be some passages that may suggest the Feast of Tabernacles will come back because that was a feast celebrating God's presence with His people, and so in this case, there will be the actual presence of God with His people for a thousand years. So it could be that the cleansing is important in that way, that God is trying to cleanse the land because as He's going into the millennial kingdom, uh, you know, there's going to be a certain amount of of uh, you know Old Testament things brought back. We don't know that. Uh, I think the most likely thing, the simplest thing, and so probably the best we can actually do, is you are going to have God in the person of Jesus Christ sitting on the throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. God, you know, is holy. You know, and, and you know, he wants the land cleansed, if for no other reason because he is going to be living in the land with his people. It reminds me of another Old Testament passage, and this is, it may seem a bit odd to us, but it, it shouldn't. Uh, and, I, and I didn't actually mark this down. I, I should have, but uh, I'll basically paraphrase that um, God told Israel, when you are camped out you know, in the wilderness at, at night, make an area outside of your camp basically as your latrine. You know, a place that you can go in the middle of the night and go do your business because I, your God, am, am your protector and I will walk around amongst you in your camp, uh, you know, and, and God's basically saying, I don't want your filth there when I'm in your midst. I, You know, that's just the, the basic reality of what he's saying. And so... That concept of the holiness of God, not, you know, God cannot stand sin, you know, and, and he, you know, he, he also, he's a holy God, so cleanliness, in, especially in the Old Testament, was very important. So I think that's probably about the most that we, about as far as we can go with this, is that God, because he's going to be, you know, heading into the millennium once uh, the land clean. You know he wants the dead bodies to be dealt with and the land to be cleansed and, and everything to be right because he is going to set up his perfect rule for a thousand years you know and and think of it this way if you uh, if you just got elected President of the United States and you 're about to go move into the White House, would you want dead bodies laying on the lawn? No, you wouldn't that would not be the the way you'd want your, your, uh, the vision of your reign to look, okay? Uh, and, and, and now think take that uh, the nth degree, a holy, perfect God who is about to start his, the perfect reign on earth, he doesn't want dead bodies laying all over, the, all over the land. So that seems to be the simplest explanation and, and going with the whole you know, keep it simple, stupid mentality, that's probably about the best we can do, yeah. Absolutely. Yep, yep. The byproduct of all of this is it would probably lead to disease. You know, and people will still be dying and stuff during the millennium, but God's not going to want, you know, all these kind of corpses around leading to the potential diseases and contamination of the water and things like that. So there are all kind of like side elements to this uh, that would make, uh, you know, cleanliness just that much more important. So for whatever the reason, they go on a major cleanup detail, uh, and, and, and there will actually be a grave team, there will be a cleanup team that will go throughout Israel, it says, and they will bury the dead. But even the regular people, like everybody in the course of their day is going to play a role in this, because if you come across a dead body, and remember, there's going to be you know, just thousands and thousands and thousands of dead bodies. And not only are they going to be there, they're going to be eaten by wild animals, drug around by wild animals. Uh, you know, it, it's going to be an ugly mess. So if you are, you know, you're going for a hike in Israel one day and you come across the bone sticking out of the ground, it says you put a marker on it, and at some point the grave team will come around and they'll, you know, they'll take, take care of that. Um, so it, it is a, an interesting that we have going on here it even says that that after uh the seven month period is over then there's going to be a a more concentrated effort like everybody's going to be kind of marking graves and stuff and it's almost like they're going to send people out at that point okay we we found you know all these right now but let's go make sure we we didn't miss any and people are going to go out and they're going to look and 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 they're going to do this concentrated effort to try to mark the these bones and have them buried um, so it is a fascinating picture, a um, bit hard for us to wrap our minds around, but, uh, I mean, we can get it at a small scale, but never at anything at this, uh, the enormity of this scale, uh, you know, and if any of you have ever seen, like, like old photos of, like, World War II, where they're, you know, trying to deal, you know, well, World War I, like, the trenches, my gosh, you know, uh, just you know, trying to deal with, Trench warfare, where bodies are just like stacked on top of one another like cordwood. Uh, you know how to deal with all of that. This is always a problem. You know, at the end of war, uh, and even during war, is how do you deal with you know with with the bodies? Now imagine a war that's you know, whatever degree greater than any war that we've ever seen, uh, and, and the amount of bodies that you're going to have. So. Um, yeah, the, the 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 cleansing of the land will be important, and it will take seven months effort to do all the burying, and then a, another period after that to make sure that they got every you know every body. And probably my guess would be that they will probably keep finding bodies throughout the beginning of the of the millennium, just because of the nature of of things. Um, all right, let's. Um, Let's move on from, from that, and let's, uh, let's take a look at, uh, at Ezekiel chapter 39, verses 17 through 24. Son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Call out every kind of bird, all the wild animals, assemble and come together from all around to the sacrifice I am preparing for you, the great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel. There you will eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of, of the princes of the earth as, they were, uh, as if they were rams and lambs, goats and bulls, all of them fattened animals from Bashan. At the sacrifice I am preparing for you, you will eat fat till you are glutted and drink blood till you are drunk. Uh, at my table you will eat your fill of horses and riders, mighty men and, and soldiers of every kind, declares the sovereign Lord." I will display my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see the punishment I inflict and the hand I lay on them. From that day forward, the people of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God, and the nations will know that the people of Israel went into exile for their sin uh, because they were unfaithful to me. So I hid my face from them and handed them over to their enemies, and they, are, and, and they all fell by the sword." I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their offenses, and I hid my face from them. All right, there's kind of two major parts to this. One is the feast of the birds, and the other one is God's uh, you know, treatment, uh, the justice of his treatment of Israel, uh, and, and, and we'll get to that in a second, but let's deal with the, the feast for the birds. Um, this is... a it's an amazing sight, really, but it's something that's talked about numerous times in Scripture. Uh, we saw this earlier in in uh, uh, the book of Revelation, and, and again, it probably corresponds to the same moment. Uh, let me read something to you from uh, Dr. Cooper here in the in the uh, the uh, New American commentary about this. He says, uh, Verses 17 through 20 develop the birds of prey theme from verse 4. God speaks through Ezekiel to the birds and animals, inviting them to, to a sacrificial meal at which Gog will be the only item on the menu. The bird, uh, these birds and animals, are invited to feast on the dead corpses of the army of Gog. Bodies will lie in the open as, as the burial corps proceeds with their work for seven months. Little imagination is needed to realize the gruesome fact that the birds of of prey and wild animals will feed on carrion. Reference to setting a marker by a bone suggests that often uh, by the time the burial takes place, there was not much remaining to bury in the valley of Hamon-Gog, which is, you know, that's true. There will be a lot of exposed bones because the animals will be eating whatever flesh is there. The army of Gog will be eaten as if it... uh, as if it were consumed by the altar fires like a sacrificial animal. And I thought that was kind of interesting because God does use the terms of sacrifice in talking about that. He said, I'm setting up a sacrifice in the land. Uh, and even though it will not be fires that are burning up the bodies, they will be consumed uh, just like fire would consume the body. God said he was preparing his sacrifice, and the birds and animals are, uh, at his table will eat their fill. The idea of the Lord's sacrifice as a divine judgment also may be found uh, in passages in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, and later on in Revelation chapter 19. Gog's army will be a glorious sight when it appears with horses and horsemen fully armed, a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. An alliance of many nations, it will come against Israel like a storm cloud, and God's people will be helpless before them. A compassionate observer would wince at the prospect of such an imminent slaughter of a peaceful and unsuspecting people. But just as disaster is about to strike God's people, they will see a massive and spectacular display of the power and wrath of God against their enemies. They will stand by and watch in amazement as the great army of Gog is annihilated by earthquake, flood, hail, fire, and their own swords. So, you know, it's... God purposely paints a very frightening spectacle coming at Israel, and he uses the terms like, you know, they it, it come like a cloud or like a storm. And that's the way, the way it will look to human beings. But to God, it's nothing. And God will wipe them out without Israel ever having to strike a blow. And not only will he wipe them out, he will reduce them completely. They will be destroyed they will be consumed as if a fire went through their ranks and consumed the bodies in this case they were consumed by the wild animals a very uh ignobled you know moment for the great gog of magog uh and so god literally is reducing human glory here human glory is destroyed uh Gog, in some ways, is like a, a picture of mankind shaking their fist at God and saying, God, look at what I can do. I, I, I can overtake you. It's kind of like the ultimate moment of that. And remember, the one behind it all is Satan. He, it, it's, it's kind of like his ultimate moment of, God, we fought before. Now look at the best I can do, and look at what happens to the best that human glory and the best that Satan's power can do. Nothing. It's complete destruction. Uh, and, and, and God driving home the point by allowing the, the animals, it, it, the, you know, the, the, the lo- a somewhat lower level of his creation destroying the highest level of his creation. Uh, animals that were once eaten by men now eating men. You guys get the idea that how how you know in this picture we see this reversal that is taking place, and God is kind of driving home the point that you shake your puny fist at me, and it means nothing to me. Yeah, you know, and that's very purposeful that, that God is making that point in this passage. Now, the Bashan reference is fascinating. Uh, and this would seem to be a uh, not so veiled. it's it's veiled to us because we don't know much about it. but it wouldn't be veiled to the people of the day, uh, reference to Satan. Bashan, um, let me kind of try to try my best to explain a little bit about what the ancient connections were of this region. This kind of corresponded to a region that in Jesus' day was known as Caesarea Philippi. If you guys think back to the time of the Gospels, uh, and a time, and this was an area north of the Sea of Galilee, right on the edge of, of Israeli territory. It was an area that was known uh, as kind of for Baal worship, for for the worship of other pagan gods, but particularly associated with Baal. And again, Baal, you know, is is always seen by, you know, by the Jewish people as kind of their, you know, God's great rival. Uh, and many, you know, in the Jewish mind, it, it kind of went over to bull, and then Beelzebub, uh, basically referring to this, you know, probably to the same, you know, this, the same uh, false deity. And that came to be a symbol of Satan to the Jews, uh, you know, of, of God's great uh, great adversary and God, the great adversary of God's people. One of the things they called this area was the gates of hell. Baal was seen as the lord of the underground, the the lord of the undead. Uh, And and this was considered to be the the center of his territory. And so that area was called the Gates of Hell. It was right up against the backdrop of Mount Hermon, this great great kind of uh, big granite edifice uh, at the very northern end of, of Israel. And I want you to think of a story uh, in Jesus' time where he took his disciples north of the Sea of Galilee into the region of Caesarea Philippi and he took them to this place and he said to his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they gave a variety of answers, all good answers. You're a prophet, you're a, you know, Elijah, come back. You know, those are very complimentary things, but they're not the correct thing. None of them was right. And Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who usually when he opened his mouth quickly stuck his foot right in it, this time he did not. Peter hit a, you know, a grand slam this time and he said, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, You know, earthly things haven't shown this to you. Peter, my father, he's the one who revealed this truth to you. And, and, and you are the rock, man. You are the Petros, the little rock. But on this Petra, and he says this with the backdrop of Mount Hermon in the background, with this Petra, on this Petra, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus did all that on purpose. It was one of the most provocative moments in the Gospels where he literally took his disciples into the the teeth of Satan's territory of how the Jews would have seen as Satan's territory, Baal's territory. And he said, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, the same area that we saw as Caesarea Philippi in Jesus' day is the area that the Old Testament often refers to as Bashan. That's why when you see them talking about like the bulls of Bashan and things like that, it's usually a reference to something unclean, something powerful. Not always, but most of the time, it's a reference to something unclean. So there, the, the ancient world carried uh, uh, you know, th- this, this kind of view of Bashan as, as kind of Baal territory, unclean to the Jews. So it's interesting that look at how Jesus describes here these uh, princes of the earth. He says you'll drink the, drink the, the blood of the princes of the earth, e- earth as if they were rams and lambs, goats and bulls, all of them fattened animals from Bashan. They're the best of Satan. They're the best that the gates of hell can throw against you. And the animals of the field will drink their blood and eat their carcasses. There's no contest in this battle. No contest in the battle between God and Satan. Again, that gets somewhat lost on us as we read this. It would not have been lost on Ezekiel's readers. And remember, these are people that are in captivity. They have been taken away into Babylon, which you know by the end has become Persia. And you know, God is giving them assurances that he will bring them back into their land. Chapter 37, right before we got into these two chapters, is the dry bones chapter, how God will, will take the dry bones and reanimate them and make them new again. Uh, it, it, you know, it didn't really fit our time to, to look at that. We may look at that later when we talk about the millennial kingdom. We may come back to chapter 37. But you know, God has, has reanimated the people and he, he's talking about bringing them into their land, in, into their, their covenant rest. But the question is, hey, somebody. every time we've come back into our land, every time we've had this place, something has always overcome us, someone's always defeated us, And God says, not this time. When I promise you your covenant rest, your final covenant rest, no enemy will ever be able to take that away from you. In fact, I'm going to bring against you purposefully the greatest enemy that has ever existed, the greatest army who's ever existed, and you won't have to raise a finger. I will destroy them on the mountains of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And I will bring them so low the animals and the birds will eat their carcasses. That's the point to the passage. That, you know, because sometimes people ask, well, what could this possibly have meant if this was so much in the future? You know, why would God write this to those people in captivity if it wasn't going to happen for thousands and thousands of years? It doesn't matter in some ways when it happens. The the, the people of Israel and all of God's people from that point can draw great strength from this passage. Because what it says is that their greatest enemy, Satan, can do nothing against God. As Paul would write in the New Testament, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's the point you know that that is largely the point of the Gog and Magog passages now let's let's move on here look at verses 21 through 24 and this really deals largely with God's reputation and you know we've all heard through the years people well you know if god's real you, you, I mean, you know, this—you hear this a lot from like atheists and things like that. If God is real, then why is suffering? Why does suffering exist? Why do all these bad things happen, Perry? I, you know, you're a, you, you love apologetics. Isn't that one of the main arguments that you hear from people when you talk to? Them? If not, thee, thats exactly right. Interestingly enough, it's not an argument that philosophers use much anymore, because they've given that argument up because they know it doesn't carry any weight. If you talk to a regular person on the street, the number one thing you're gonna get from, from skeptics is, well, you know, the fact that so many bad things happen prove that there's no God. God's name, has, his reputation has been on the line because of sin for thousands of years. Amongst the Jews themselves. You know, it, it, it's interesting that, that you know the Jews, they, they largely rejected their Messiah, even though thousands and thousands did believe the majority rejected their Messiah, but they remained very religious, very much worshiping the God of, you know, the, the, the God of the Bible, not Jesus, but God the Father, uh, you know, up through until the time of, of the Second World War. Most Jews to this day are nominally religious. Israel is largely an agnostic nation. We, you know, we don't know that about them. We kind of get the idea that well, they're just all these like like super Jewish people that are you know are very devout. No, they're not. It's very you know, it's largely an agnostic nation. What did that was World War II, the Holocaust did that. If you ever want to get a a, a, a you know just a little bit of a peek into that window, read Elie Wiesel's. Uh, you know, uh, and then it just the name of the book just went on my head, night Re- Read that book. If you want to get a picture of what a very devout Jew felt coming out of the Holocaust, get a picture into their world if you really want to. And I'll tell you, it'll help you understand the Bible in some ways. You know, because you'll understand how people think. So, you know... God's reputation, even amongst his chosen people, uh, has been on the line for many years. I want you to look at verses 21 through 24. I will display my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see the punishment I inflict and the hand I lay on them. So the first thing is, the nations are going to know, this is what happens if you come up against me. I am the true, all-powerful God. No one else is. The nations will know this. Verse 22, from that day forward, the people of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God. When they see their deliverance, they will know that I am the Lord their God. Again, I believe you know part of this equates to what happens right before the, the, the end of the tribulation to the battle of Armageddon. Part of this equates to after you know the millennial kingdom certainly the salvation of israel as a whole would reflect this moment what happens at the end of the tribulation period when israel come as a, as a people come to belief would reflect this moment they will look at their uh, you know at how god has protected them at how he's delivered them and they will know that i am their god and the nations will know that the people of israel went into exile for their sin because they were unfaithful to me. So I hid my face from them and handed them over to their enemies, and they fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their offenses, and I hid my face from them. So God essentially defends his honor here. He says, when I am done defeating this enemy, the nations will know that I am all-powerful, and my own people, The Jewish people will know that I am their God. They will see me protect them, and they will also, they and all the nations, will understand the reason I turned my face away from them was not that I ever gave up on them, not that I didn't love them, not that they they ever uh, were anything other than the apple of my eye. The reason is because of their own sin, because of their uncleanness. Because of what they they did, I gave them the punishment they deserved and I turned away from them and I allowed them to go into captivity. Now remember, who's the, uh, the audience here? It's those very Jews that are in captivity. They're the ones Ezekiel is writing this to. So God is basically saying to him, look, there's going to come a day, I'm going to build you back up again like, like, like the, dry, the dry bones. There'll come a day though, I'll bring an army against you, but I'll show you my faithfulness by destroying that army and you won't have to lift a finger and you will understand the reason you went into captivity was because of your sin. I turned my face away from you, but I never essentially turned my back on. I let you go into captivity to punish your sin. It's interesting because he, he, you know, think of some of the things he talks about here. God's justice. Israel will know their God. The nations will know God, uh, that that God didn't abandon Israel. They were punished for their sins. God's glory will be established. He talks about all those things in, in, in those, you know, handful of verses there. You know, so God is basically saying, you know, my reputation is on the line here, and I'm going to prove to people who I am. It's interesting, because he then builds on that, but let let me read something here from the NIV application commentary real quick. The lesson Israel is to draw from these chapters is explicitly laid out for them in in verses uh, 21 through 29 of, of Ezekiel 39. The Lord is sovereign in history, a sovereignty that is displayed before the nations in two separate movements. One, in the first, God demonstrated his sovereignty by sending his own people into exile because of their sin and unfaithfulness. He hid his face from them, and as a result, they became easy prey for all their enemies. But two, but in the days to come, a new period of uh, of Israel's history is beginning. God's people will return from exile. He will have compassion on them. This change in their fortune will cause them to bear their shame. Uh, That is, they will take responsibility for their past actions when they are restored to their land and dwell in safety. Then they will know that it is the Lord their God who sent them into exile and the Lord their God who returns them from exile. The tragic events of 586 B.C. will never repeat themselves, for the covenant-keeping God will pour out his spirit on his people as he once poured out his wrath on them, and he will never again hide his face from them. In verse, you know, Verses 21 through 24 lead into verses 25 through 29. Let's read, read those. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will, I will now restore the fortunes of Jacob and I will have compassion on all the people of Israel, and I will be zealous for my holy name. They will forget their shame. And that word there, forget, it, it does not mean that they'll, um, oh, they're going to pretend like it never happened. As, as, as uh, you know, the, the author just noted there, that actually means they will take responsibility for their sin. Uh, you know, they, they, they will realize their shame it, you know, was their own fault. And they will take responsibility for it. Uh, and it, it will no longer be there because it will be repented of. That's, that's the, the idea. It says, they says, They will forget their shame and all the unfaithfulness they showed toward me when they lived in safety in their land with no one to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the nations and have gathered them from the countries of their enemies... I will be proved holy through them in the sight of many nations. Again, you notice the emphasis on God's reputation. I will be proved holy before all the nations. See, it doesn't mean that that he doesn't become holy there. God's always been holy. Just the nations never recognized it. And, And, you know, folks, this goes back a long ways. This is not just Israel and Babylon, you know, or Israel and Persia. This goes back to the beginning, it goes back to the fall, it goes back to Adam and Eve choosing their own way. It it goes back to the time leading up to Noah where the world completely rejected God except for one man. It it goes back to the time after the flood, you know, when when you have Babel and what happened, The, the people of the earth reject God. That is the continual theme throughout the entire Old Testament. That every time God gave people a chance, they, they threw it in his face and they rejected him and they said, we'll do it our own way, God. You go sit this one out. So people have always rejected God. And God is saying in, in this, these final moments, all the nations will see and understand that I am God they'll get it finally the unfortunate price it has to take to get man there but they will get it finally i will be proved holy through them in the sight of many nations then they will know that i am the lord their god for though i sent them into exile among the nations i will gather them to their own land not leaving any behind i will no longer hide my face from them for I will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, declares the Sovereign Lord. That brings us to the end of the Gog Magog passages. Now there's a few things I want to talk about that kind of piggyback on that. One, I love how this ends on a message of hope. For the next eight, nine chapters, 40 through 48 God will then, through Ezekiel, paint a picture of, uh, you know, of, of basically the millennial kingdom, of, of the idealized temple and God's people dwelling with their God. You know, God ha- has promised uh, you know, from like chapter 33 onward that he would restore his people, that he would defeat their enemies, that he would protect them once he's brought them into their covenant rest. He's promised all these things and he ends out the Gog and Magog passages by saying, you will now see that I am your God. I will leave none behind. Uh, and, and I, you know, he is promising blessings to his people. I will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. And beginning in chapter 40, then he, be, he begins painting a picture of what that looks like. So it's really a, a beautiful passage. It's not something we have the time to deal with right now, we we will probably get into forty through forty-eight just a little bit. We're not gonna, you know, try to exegete that entire, you know, passage when we get into the millennial kingdom portions of Revelation. But we will come back to some of these things once we get into that portion of Revelation. But it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful passage. So it ends for all the destruction in the Gog and Magog passages. It ends with a declaration of who God is, and the holiness of God, and a message of hope to Israel. I think that's pretty cool. You know, if you're going to have this, the greatest battle that's ever existed, isn't it great to end it on a note of hope? That's not how they generally end. You know, and so it's kind of a, it's a neat thing. Um, again, let me read something to you here. Yes, sir. Uh, it, it was leading up to the Battle of Armageddon, and, and, and uh, we talked about the gathering together for the Battle of Armageddon, and then the Bible kind of leaves off in that for a while as it d- goes through the, the bowl judgments. Then we got to the end of the bowl judgments, and right before we get to the point where it, there's a couple chapters talking about uh, Babylon the Great, and, and, and then it, in chapter 19, you have then the Battle of Armageddon, like the, the campaign of Armageddon take place. So I, I figured before we, got, before we dealt with that, I wanted to jump back into Ezekiel, kind of look at what this says, and, and that would kind of set us straight to go then into those three chapters, it really four chapters. Uh, you know, uh, and, and that's what we'll do next week. Chapter 17 uh, a, a through 20 are kind of dealing with these end times things. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Absolutely yeah yeah nope yeah we'll, we'll get there um but, but just kind of like to, to jump on on that for a second uh armageddon you know it, it is all of the world but a lot of the focus is on on israel uh in, in a lot of ways it's fulfillment of a lot of old testament passages to israel about you know them coming to the brink of destruction and then at the last moment their Messiah comes and rescues them. And we'll deal with some of that when we get into chapter 19. Uh, but then you have the millennial kingdom kind of take place for a thousand years. And, and again, that's Jew and Gentile. That's all of God's people. Uh, you know, the, the, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about this just, just here in a few minutes if we have time. Um, you know, it, it's kind of Israel's salvation, kind of that moment that, that points to you know, God saying, I will leave none behind. Uh, you know, for 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 Israel, um, and, and well, I'll just back out because we're going to talk about that in a second. But but you are right. Then after that millennium, then you have chapter twenty where Satan is loosed and allowed to go out and do this again. And it says he goes and brings Gog and Magog again. And 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 like we talked about earlier, that's kind of why a lot of scholars see these passages as referring to both Armageddon and. The you know the loosing of Satan at the end of the millennium. They kind of combine the two together as kind of one campaign, separated by a thousand years. Um, yeah, let me uh, let me read uh, something to you here from uh, from from uh, Doctor Cooper here. in these verses the focus shifts back to the uh, back from the eschatological future to the situation of the exiles in babylon this passage provides a conclusion to the gog and magog passage but also the six restoration messages of chapter 33 verse 1 up through chapter 39. in this summary ezekiel lists seven purposes that god would achieve by ending the exile first god would initiate a new era of relationship with israel hence the use of now. Second, God would had demonstrated the discipline of love by chastening his people. He would show the compassion of love by restoring them from their former place, or to their former place, excuse me. Third, God would be zealous for his holy name's sake. He would reverse the profaning of his name that was reported in Ezekiel uh, 36 and promote the uh, sanctification of his name amongst the heathen. Fourth, Israel would forget their shame and unfaithfulness uh, in that their time of disgrace would be passed. Fifth, God would demonstrate his holiness through the regathering of Israel from the countries of their enemies and reestablishing them in their land. Sixth, Israel would, uh, would know that Yahweh is their God, for he would leave none, of, none in exile but return everyone to the land. And, and seventh, God would pour out his spirit on the house of Israel uh, as he promised Uh, And and there's numerous passages of that, but the most famous is Joel chapter 2, and and we'll talk about that here in a second. Um, A promise that was associated with the Messianic age. Um, Well, let's just, we'll hold on to that for a second here. Now, that brings us to kind of an enormous question in regards to all of this. What's it mean... That, that God will pour out his spirit on, on Israel? What's it mean that God will save them? Um, because there are different views on this. Some people, this is called replacement theology, some people believe that the church essentially assumes all of the promises that God made to Israel. Okay? You know, th- that largely, you know, comes from kind of Catholic and Reformation belief. Uh, you know, uh, for the most part others believe that no that that you know god will keep these promises that he made to israel very specifically uh but but you know all the all who are left of israel at the end of the tribulation will come to faith in jesus christ and 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 israel uh the jews and the gentiles who believe in christ will come into the millennial kingdom and god will keep his promises to to israel and also his promises to to the church uh you know they they are all one people in belief in christ but god still remembers his promises to israel uh that he made to them as his chosen people um so those are kind of the two ways that people look at this now i want to take a look at a couple passages here um you know what does the church replace israel and i will tell you right up front that i do not believe so i I do not like replacement theology. I think it's bad theology. Um, but, you know, we'll talk about here, that here. Uh, let me kind of, again, read something to you, to you here. It says, yet those who think that, that Pentecost is the, is the final fulfillment of this prophecy and that the church has replaced Israel in the plan of God must reckon with the stress of these chapters on the need for an eschological, less, an eschological uh, vindication of God's name in his dealings with Israel. These prophecies call for Israel's literal return to the land in peace and prosperity, followed by the threat of massive invasion and a spectacular annihilation of Israel's enemies. Only then will the revelation of the uniqueness and glory of God be complete, and will the purpose of Israel as a light to the nations be fulfilled." as Robert Saucy has written, it is not that God simply chooses to reveal to all people his grace and power and the reestablishment and blessing of his people. More than that, God's reputation is at stake. Thus, just as his holiness required him to judge Israel for rebellion, so also it requires him to regather and restore it. So the restoration of Israel is not only a display of God's love and power in, in behalf of his people, but also an event necessary for the preservation of the honor of the true God. You know, it goes back again to, you know, really to Babel and to the scattering of the nations. You can read about that in, in Deuteronomy 32, when God basically said to the nations, okay, if this is what you want, you can have it. This is what Paul refers to in Romans chapter 1 also, when the, when the people turned away from God, though they knew Him, they 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 did not worship Him, and they turned away from Him and started to worship, you know, creatures crawling on the ground and and all these things. Uh, you know, God essentially said to man, "If this is what you want, you can have it. I will divvy you out amongst the sons of God." And that's a whole other debate. We don't have time for today. What exactly that means, but basically, I'll give you out to, um, you know, to 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 my holy ones and, 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 and you know, you can go. But Israel will be my people, God said in, in Deuteronomy 32. This is right before, this is when Moses was dying. Israel was about to go into the promised land and God told Moses, you won't go. And Moses sang his last song to Israel, his last Prophecy. And he told them, (laughs) basically, you're a bunch of stubborn, stiff-necked people, and you're going to fall away from God, and you're going to keep falling away from God. But you need to remember that God is the only reason you exist. You did not exist as a nation. God brought you out from amongst the peoples. Because he said to all the peoples, go have your way. I will give you over to the sons of God. But Israel will be mine. And God made a nation by bringing Abraham out of Babylon, out of Ur, out of the very same place God would take them into captivity one day. Out of the very same place associated with Babel and the falling away of the people from God. see, There's a reason that name keeps cropping up again. It's not coincidence. That There's never a coincidence like that in the Bible when you see the same thing keep cropping up for the same evil purposes all the time. But yet, out of the heart of that evil, out of the heart of that rebellion, God took a man named Abram. And he said, just believe in me, Abram. I'll make you these promises if you'll just believe in me. And Abram did. And God changed his name to Abraham, and he made a promise to him. Through you, I will bless all the nations. Through you and your people, the Jews, I will win them back to me, all of them. I've abandoned them for now, but one day I'll win them all back. That was Israel's role. That's what God created them as a people to do. That's why they they were his chosen ones, because he made them. They did not exist as a people until he made them a people in order to win back all the other peoples. So God keeps his promises to them because he uses them to win back all. That's what they were created to do. That's why he says here, I will be vindicated to all the nations. They will know that I'm God because they saw I was God to you. Replacement theology fails, I think, on many avenues, but that may be the greatest it fails at because it fails to see the true purpose of what God is doing in the world. Israel existed and exists to this day in order to bring God's word, God, you know, God's law, God's prophets, ultimately God's son, the Messiah, to earth for the purpose of saving all mankind, including Israel. It's what God created them to do. I, I want you to, uh, before we run out of time, real quickly, I want you you guys to, to look at verses 25 through 29, especially verse 28. And I want want you to think where at any place here does the church, is the church reflected in any of this? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and will have compassion on all the people of Israel, and I will be zealous for my holy name. They will forget their shame and all the unfaithfulness they showed toward me when they lived in safety in their land. Where does that, how does the church fit into that? When did the church ever do that? With no one to make them afraid, when I brought them back from the nations and gathered them from the countries of their enemies, I will have proved holy through them in the sight of many nations. Where does the church fit into being brought back from like that? Dozens. Verse 28 in, 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 in particular, then they will know that I am their Lord, the Lord their God. Then after I rescue them, they'll know that. Where does the church fit into that? For though I sent them into exile amongst the nations, again, where was the church ever sent into exile? I will gather them to their own land, not leaving any behind. The, the, you know, the, the, the passage is very specific in saying God will do these things. When I do these things, my people will know that I am God. None of those things fit what will happen to the church. As a friend of mine always likes to say, he said, you know, the replacement theologians, they want all the blessings, but they don't want any of the curses. You know? They they, they say, well, that's all Israel. But the blessings part, that's ours. That's malarkey. You know, if if the shoe doesn't fit, you can't wear it. You know? And and so, you know, I, I don't have much time for replacement theology um you know it's it's interesting but just real quickly let me read something to you from from romans chapter 11 we've read this before um last year when we kind of dealt with some of these things but i just want to real quickly read just verses 23 through 29 this is the apostle paul writing to the romans writing to gentiles writing to the church And writing about Israel, clearly seeing two different people here. Clearly seeing that. He says, and if they do not persist in unbelief, talking about Israel, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, How much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godliness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. That as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. God said, I made promises to their fathers. and My gifts and my calling are irrevocable. I will keep my word. And those passages in, in Ezekiel are examples of that very thing, that God says at the end, I will keep my word to my people. All right, let's close. We are out of time. My goodness, it took us four weeks to get through that, and we still barely made it. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the beauty of your word and, and the, the starkness of it at times. And Father, um, you are a holy God, You can't stand the sin and the the filthiness that we have become, but yet you love us so. You sent your son to die for us. You keep your word. You keep your promises. Uh, Father, we are so thankful for you. We're thankful for who you are. We are thankful for what you've done, and and we just pray that today you would accept our, our worship and you would be pleased with what we do. And we ask it in the name of your Son. Amen. Thank you, guys.